Welcome to Cato Audio for January 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. Happy New Year, everybody. Thank you, Cy. In this month's offering, a discussion of how attempts to regulate crypto have evolved with our own Jack Sullivan and Jennifer Schulp. SEC Commissioner Mark Uyeda discusses environmental, social, and governance investing mandates. British MP Kemi Batnock discusses what should be a universal value, free trade, and a conversation with Cato's Patrick Eddington on government transparency and protecting those who tell us about mischief in government. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. In the wake of the crash of crypto exchange FTX, we've seen some new calls to regulate cryptocurrencies that we haven't seen before. But to what extent would that new regulation effectively push offshore this still very young industry? Uh, We're, of course, talking about crypto regulation, its possibilities, what it ought to look like, if there ought to be any at all. I'm speaking with Jack Soloway, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Jennifer Schulp, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives. And, uh, you know, the elephant in the room, because we're recording this at the end of November, uh, and this is for the January edition of Cato Audio, uh, this FTX story is still very much alive, and we're still learning a lot about what happened at this uh, this crypto exchange, and we will get to that. But I, I guess I want to understand what makes cryptocurrencies so difficult to uh, regulate as compared with, say, a bank or uh, some other mo- unit of exchange that we might be tempted to use. Jennifer? Sure. I think it's a it's an interesting question because in some ways they're not that much more difficult to regulate, but in many ways they are. And one of the first things to think about when thinking about why crypto is harder to regulate is just the fact that crypto is newer. Um, it's based on technology that doesn't have a long history, and it's technology that hasn't really found itself in the crosshairs of a lot of the regulatory schemes that um, already apply to other financial instruments. The Securities and Exchange Commission looks at financial instruments to determine if they're securities. They do that mostly on the basis of laws put into place in the 1930s and Supreme Court precedent that was put into place in the 1940s and 1950s. Crypto doesn't look a lot like securities looked like in the 1940s. Um, Crypto also doesn't look a lot like money looks like to a banking regulator. And it doesn't exactly look like a commodity looks like to a commodities regulator. So crypto is difficult to regulate because it doesn't neatly fit into a place that already exists in the laws, which causes us to ask the question of, how do you regulate crypto then? Jack? I think Jen raises a, a lot of really important points here. Uh, crypto is a novel technology, and there are ways in which the technology itself has and can continue to confound regulators if they don't understand it at a granular technical level. So, for example, the term decentralization is thrown around a lot in the context of discussing cryptocurrencies. And this is really a novel innovation in financial history because traditionally, when it comes to exchanging, selling, buying any financial instrument, which crypto tokens are, uh, one typically had to rely in the past on centralized intermediaries like banks and brokers. But the core innovation at the heart of cryptocurrencies, a decentralized public blockchain ledger, actually obviates the need, removes the need for traditional types of financial intermediaries like brokers and banks. And that that new idea is something that it takes a bit of time for folks, particularly policymakers, to wrap their heads around. And what and what difference does that make? The fact that those intermediaries are 
uh, at least at a base level. I think for the average person, some kind of intermediary is necessary. People who are not steeped in this world and yet want to participate in it. An intermediary is practically necessary for a lot of those people. But uh, why, why is it different that an intermediary is not absolutely essential to the process of uh, exchanging, buying, selling crypto? Sure. So I think you raise a great point, Caleb, which is that for a lot of folks, they do interact with the crypto ecosystem via centralized intermediaries, so-called fiat on-ramps, things like apps and desktop applications um, that allow people to buy cryptocurrencies with, say, a debit card. And traditionally, those resemble more closely things like banks or brokers because the exchanges custody customers' assets. They hold customers' assets on their behalf, typically. They also generate their own books. They have a responsibility to keep the books, and assets exist on those, those exchanges' ledgers. But there also is a broader world, a broader crypto ecosystem, where decentralization is really critical, where uh, we really see some some novel concepts that are unique in financial history. So, for example, uh, there are lending protocols where instead of having a traditional credit score to uh, ascertain an individual's creditworthiness or a pre-existing relationship with that individual, there are protocols that folks can interact with um, where, say, for example, if you have the right type of cryptocurrency as collateral, you can take out a loan based on that. And that really opens up some novel opportunities for folks to engage in the financial system uh, in what's referred to as a permissionless way. So without the traditional types of gatekeeping institutions and gatekeeping questions. And I'll throw in there what makes it so confounding for financial regulators now is that financial regulation, um, not just in the United States, but largely in the world, is geared towards regulating those intermediaries. It's geared towards regulating the middleman. And when there's no middleman, it's a big question, how do you regulate? Do you regulate? Do you need to regulate? And what do the current financial regulators think needs to be done in those situations, which I think is why we hear out of the Securities and Exchange Commission often these days that a lot of talk that makes it sound like there is no such thing as decentralization because the SEC is desperately looking for a middleman to regulate in all crypto situations. Yeah, and and uh, I think, Jen, we've, we, you and I have discussed this before, you know, when when regulators are looking for somebody to squeeze um it it is often uh because they know they can squeeze somebody and with so many cryptocurrencies it's a little like a watch that has been built and set and then participation in the network is you know whatever any individual wants to contribute to that process proof of stake proof of work Proof of, uh, you know, however you demonstrate your value on the network, you can participate easily and there is no one to uh, look over your shoulder when you're doing that. Yeah, I think that's right. And we see that at play on multiple levels when we're talking about something like the Securities and Exchange Commission's regulation. Um, the SEC only has jurisdiction if a crypto token is deemed to be a security. And securities laws have been built up over the years to largely deal with questions about information asymmetries between the people running a company and the people investing in the company. In crypto, there's certain circumstances where there's no one running that ship, as you say. Um, the watch has been set and it's, it's going on. Um, the SEC has been looking to minimize the situations where they say that happens. Um, the SEC has acknowledged that Bitcoin is one such situation um, where there's a decentralized situation, but has been very reluctant to say that any other crypto token 
has kind of off on its own path without having that that intermediary, that that middleman, that manager involved who might have say the the keys to set the watch, if we're going to take that example a little bit further. Um, so we see a lot of these questions about what does it mean to be decentralized? And is that the regulatory hook that should be applying? Given the, the I'll say, inherent weirdness of uh, cryptos, different regulators uh, can examine a currency, a cryptocurrency, and say, well, this this performs this task. And it's our job to regulate the the function the doing of that task. So what does what what are regulators hanging their hat on? And sometimes they're at cross purposes, it seems, to be able to say, we regulate this and no, your agency does not. Well, I can start off by saying, you know, with respect to the US financial regulatory system, I think the best thing we can say about it in in this space is bless its heart. Um, because there's so many different regulators functioning in the same space. And what you raise is the question of kind of functional regulation, which is one way to approach regulation. And we see that at different places in the U.S. system. But the way we've tended to think about it is that regulation should be focused on the risks that a particular token, financial instrument, whatever it is, poses. And those risks can come from function, but those risks can also be related to how it's built or how it's used, how it's performed. And those risks, how those risks are regulated is relevant to how the individual agency's kind of missions are in the first place. As I noted before, the securities laws tend to look at information asymmetries. Um, The commodities laws tend to look at something different. The banking laws tend to look at something different. So it's a question of looking at what risks are posed by the technology, by the crypto token, and determining what the right way to deal with those risks are, not necessarily the function. And we'll put aside the fact that having more than one regulator touch things tends to make things a mess. I think everybody knows that. Um, Sometimes that can't be avoided in our system, but it should definitely be minimized. I think Jen makes a a very important distinction here between functional regulation and risk-based regulation. Um, And crypto tokens, for example, um, do present different risks depending on whether they are, as we were discussing a minute ago, centralized or decentralized. And so, for example, in the securities context, the traditional risk that Jen was alluding to is one posed by a managerial body that might have more inside information, relevant information that other market participants do not have, an information asymmetry. Um, And the securities regime is designed to try to mitigate that. But in the case of crypto tokens, even if you are to accept the idea that um, a crypto token more closely resembles something like a security because there's a managerial body, because a particular token is not yet decentralized or is not decentralized at any point in its history, there's different types of questions that the user of a crypto token might be interested in having answered. Um, And it's important to recognize that uh, there are there are higher level risks such as information asymmetries, but the tools that regulators deploy to try to mitigate those can also vary depending on the type of instrument at issue. And in the case of crypto tokens, um, things like say audited financial statements that traditional um, securities regulations are designed to elicit might not actually be the most relevant piece of information for a crypto user in the marketplace. They might want to know uh, things about the crypto token that are more native to crypto, such as what is the consensus mechanism for a token, such as is there a tool, is there something like a block explorer that lets me view the transaction history on the public blockchain? Um, so it's important that regulators not sort of, even if they identify a traditional risk, don't 
necessarily go back to the traditional toolbox where it's just not applicable. And in crypto, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, because so much of the information that is generated by uh, networks for individual coins or networks of interactions between coins, um, a lot of that is effectively public by its nature, and almost anyone could develop and attach tools to make uh, that information more valuable to potential users. Is that right? I, I think that's an excellent point. Um, when you're dealing with a bona fide cryptocurrency, one that has the attributes of a open, public, decentralized ledger, um, that is written and where the underlying software is written in open source code, um, folks around the world can develop their own applications and tools to, uh, to analyze what has gone on on that cryptocurrency blockchain. And this is what's really exciting about the crypto ecosystem to a lot of folks. It, uh, the, these attributes at a high level are referred to as permissionlessness and composability. So we were talking about permissionlessness a minute ago in the example of, say, a lending protocol. But at a, in a broader sense, permissionlessness can mean that, uh, as you mentioned, Caleb, that because these projects are open that they uh, they have a certain um, existence separate and apart from uh, traditional gatekeepers and institutions, they can be interacted with by folks and programmers all over the world who are looking to develop their own applications. So we were mentioning a block explorer, something that lets you analyze what's gone on in a blockchain. But there are also situations where, say, one decentralized web application can refer out to a decentralized token exchange. So say you have something like uh, a Web3 Uber um, that it needs to accept uh, certain payments and certain tokens. Um, that can refer out to a decentralized exchange that allows uh, folks to swap their own crypto tokens, say, for the type of crypto token that that Web3 app might accept. And there doesn't necessarily need to be a prior relationship between the, say, Web3 Uber app developer and the decentralized exchange app developer. And that unleashes uh, the potential for a lot of creativity in this space. And I want to make a less technical point on that that I think kind of draws into relief the the questions about how do you regulate in this space. When we think about traditional exchange regulation, one of the main things that happens in traditional exchange regulation, and there are several main things, so this isn't the only one, but has to do with trade reporting and letting others in the trading ecosystem, as well as the regulator, know what's happening. Um, NYSE, alternative trading systems, they spend a lot of time and energy sending information about the trades back to the SEC and back to the trading network, um, the national market system. In the crypto space, particularly with respect to decentralized exchanges, all of that information is already available and public. So the idea that we were talking about before, that, that people can see that, the government can see it too. So the idea of having the same types of regulations that apply to traditional centralized securities exchanges might not make a lot of sense to have the same regulations apply to decentralized exchanges or decentralized protocols when we're talking about crypto. So to the extent that we've established that uh, there are a lot of different ways for people to get at information and a lot of different ways for participants in this uh, ecosystem to help people provide that information using tools that they create, uh, what then is the role for regulation, if any, at all? And, and where do you guys draw the line about where uh, the feds in particular would have a legitimate uh, claim to be able to say, we get to, we get to step in here and compel the production of certain information 
for the benefit of the public? So I'll go ahead and start and then I'll let Jack finish. Um, I think the first question that we should ask is what's the right regulator? Um, and we look do that by thinking about whether the crypto token looks like a security as it already exists. And we've talked a little bit about already how securities that are tokens that have managerial bodies, um, who are the promoters of the project, who want people to use the token, to use the network, look a lot like a traditional security. But there are projects like Bitcoin that don't have that managerial body. Where that managerial body doesn't exist, we don't think the securities laws should apply. And thus, the SEC has no role in regulating. Um, and it doesn't need to be regulated as a security. Um, where a project has a managerial body, a lot of times the end goal is for that managerial body to disappear, for that managerial body to, we'll go back to the prior analogy, set the watch and walk away. And in those circumstances, we think it's appropriate for the SEC to play a role, but that role needs to be sensitive to the nature of the token and the project itself. So traditional securities disclosures are time-consuming, they're expensive, and they create a lot of information that are that A, might not be relevant at all to token holders, token purchasers, and may not be possible to collect. Um, audited financials were one idea. So what we think is that the SEC should be involved here, but have a framework that allows crypto tokens that are in the process of decentralizing to provide a more limited scope of disclosures that are crypto token specific, so that the information provided to purchasers is relevant and is not overburdensome. Um, so I think that's a place where there's a legitimate role for the SEC here because the project is, should legitimately be seen as similar to the securities that the SEC already regulates. Um, and then I'll let Jack continue on because these are nice long answers. Well, I, I think Jen said it well. Um... When it comes to drawing that line, I just want to put a plug in for uh, a proposal that Jen and I made. So the word decentralization is thrown around a lot in crypto, and we've been using it a lot in this conversation. And from the perspective of Jen and myself, when it comes to defining decentralization, we really want to ask one straightforward question, uh, among others, but, but the core of it is, is there an individual or group at the heart of the project uh, who is promising performance without which either the project or its benefits would not come to fruition? And that really gets at the heart of what Jen was describing with uh, a managerial body that might have managerial control over a project, might have information that the rest of the public does not. And we think it can help policymakers really grapple with this um, novel concept of what it means to be a decentralized project. And that's to say nothing of uh, all of the intermediaries that do exist within the crypto space, that is, federal regulators, because there are people who are uh, making assurances, who are defending uh, or advancing some vision of security that they have for the, the products that they're holding onto on your behalf or promising you certain benefits uh, and charging fees uh, for uh, performing services for you. All of those groups would be would be subject to any number of other pieces of regulation that already exist. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that there's there's some holes in that that need to be thought through with respect to crypto. So where you have a crypto token that is not a security, but is being traded. I think it's a open question that the the current regulatory system doesn't really address at a federal level how you regulate 
centralized exchanges. A lot of the centralized exchanges right now are regulated through state money transmitter licenses, which may or may not be the best means of having regulation over crypto commodity trading. But that's really one of the biggest holes when we're talking about crypto trading. Um, Crypto that is a security is traded, would be traded by crypto securities exchanges. And while there might be, and I would say there are, rules that aren't particularly good fits for how crypto is traded, and there should be tweaks to those rules, a lot of the general principles apply um, when we're talking about trading securities, whether those securities are crypto native or they are traditional securities. So what's also worth noting in this context, I think, uh, and this has come up with revelations regarding FTX, which it should be noted is a centralized custodial exchange. So not only can tokens and other types of projects be either centralized or decentralized in the crypto ecosystem, but the exchanges themselves can. And a lot of the issues that arose with FTX are those of, as Jen was mentioning, traditional financial intermediaries. Um, So it is not fair to paint with a broad brush the entire crypto ecosystem for the failings of one specific centralized crypto exchange. And when it comes to as we were discussing a few minutes ago, the risk-based assessment of a crypto exchange, uh, some things to keep in mind. Uh, So what happened with FTX was in large part a result of one exchange that kept its own balance sheets, allowing borrowing um, by an affiliated hedge fund, borrowing customer assets. Now, that was possible on a centralized exchange because that exchange had custody of those customer assets. In the case of a decentralized exchange where customers retain what's known as the private key for their own token, basically what allows them to access the line on the decentralized ledger, um, identifying that crypto holding and allowing it to be transferred, the customer is not at the same risk of having their tokens where the customer controls their own private key and therefore therefore holds their own tokens. The risk of an intermediary disposing of those tokens as it sees fit, regardless of whether it has a legal right to do so, is mitigated by the technology. So I think it's important to note here that innovation itself when allowed to take place, can also provide some of its own consumer protective properties. And I'd say the broad brush point that Jack makes is the, the, the note I'd like to leave us with today is that with all of this crypto regulation space, it's really dangerous to paint any of it with a broad brush. Um, once Congress sits down to work on this, once the regulators sit down to work on it, it's very important to understand the differences between different projects, um, different protocols, um, the different methods by which um, people interact with the crypto universe in order to get the regulation based on the risks right. Um, Because I think as we started off talking um, about the U.S. should get the regulation here right. It's important to get it right um, because crypto is borderless. Um, to the extent that the United States ends up being an inhospitable climate for crypto, that business will leave the United States but not become fully inaccessible to its citizens. So having an environment here that can not only benefit from the technology and benefit from the potential growth of the technology is important, but it's also important to have an environment that can provide the right type of regulatory protections to the people that are going to be using it domestically. Um, We have views on what those right types of regulatory protections should be, but the United States should be very careful not to push this offshore by making rushed or broad stroke um, regulatory decisions that don't uh, address the correct risks correctly. 
All right. Jack Soloway, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Jennifer Schulp, director of financial regulation studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, thank you very much. And of course, you can follow all of their work and other work on emergent monies and other financial instruments at our website, cato.org. Environmental, Social, and Governance, that's ESG for short. It's captured the attention of the financial world as a potential means to channel large inflows of investment dollars to support firms that share those goals. But it's a far murkier undertaking than you might suspect. Mark Uyeda is a commissioner at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. He delivered the keynote address at the Cato event, The Rise of ESG and the Future of Financial Regulation. The conference raises a number of important questions, such as, what is ESG? What role should ESG play in investment decisions? And should ESG be considered in assessing financial stability? As you consider these issues, I wanted to share a few of my thoughts that reflect my individual views as a commissioner, and not necessarily the, uh, the views of the full commission or my fellow commissioners. First, let's discuss ESG and sustainability. But I'm not referring to ESG and sustainability as interchangeable terms. Rather, the terms are meant to ask whether ESG investing in its current form is itself sustainable. The asset management industry has excelled in recent years in attracting fund flows to ESG-themed investment products. Whether these trends can be sustained over the long run is an open question especially if many ESG funds are essentially plays on overweighting the technology sector and underweighting the energy sector. Meanwhile, on the corporate disclosure side, it is appropriate to inquire whether any specific E, S, or G factor will remain relevant in the future. When evaluating whether any activity can be maintained, one should think about the whether the long-term benefits outweigh the costs. For instance, the financial impact on enterprise valuations for various factors in the G category, such as the use of dual class stock or classified boards of directors, have been known for a long time. However, for ESG as a whole, whether there is a net benefit may be difficult to evaluate because interested persons may not agree on what particular factors constitute ESG much less how much weight each factor should be given. For example, the commission has a pending stock buyback rulemaking proposal. Should that disclosure be considered a G factor? Or is it an S factor? Or both? Or neither? Reasonable persons can reach different conclusions. Not surprisingly, one need look no further than the so-called ESG rating agencies, whose evaluations reflect widespread disagreement. A recent study by professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology and the University of Zurich found that the average correlation among six prominent ESG rating agencies to be 54%, compared to 99% correlation among credit rating agencies. This study showed that the divergence in ESG ratings was due mostly to how rating agencies measure company data, followed by the difference in the attributes assessed and the weighting of those attributes. One should not necessarily view the lack of correlation as a bad thing. To the contrary, it could simply reflect that ESG factors are so individualistic, it is difficult to consistently calibrate ESG on a uniform basis. Despite these disagreements on what constitutes ESG, one aspect seems certain. There will be increased costs, and these costs will be ultimately borne by investors. As an example, one should look at the estimated costs associated with the Commission's proposed climate-related disclosure. In its March 2022 proposal, the Commission estimated that the total existing external cost burden on companies to register their offerings on Form S-1 and file their annual reports on Form 10-K was a little more than $2 billion. The Commission then estimated that the marginal increase from the proposed climate disclosures alone 
would nearly triple these costs to over 6.3 billion. Now, these estimates were based on the assumption that the cost for external legal advice was $400 an hour, an amount that has remained flat since 2006. Now, recently, the SEC adjusted the assumed costs to $600 per hour, and even this revision may be too low. But even with this $600 assumption, the total estimated external costs quadruples now to $8.4 billion. One aspect of the cost for ESG that may differ from the costs associated with other disclosure rules is the potential difficulty for companies to achieve cost efficiencies or economies of scale in preparing ESG disclosures. In the climate-related disclosure proposal, the SEC assumed that compliance costs may decrease after the first year. This assumption may or may not be true. The SEC's proposal permits the use of reasonable estimates, but in the future, technology may be developed, allowing for more precise capture of greenhouse gas emissions that may entail additional costs. Furthermore, companies may have costs arising from other ESG obligations. Today, some persons, including non-investor ESG stakeholders, are focused on climate and greenhouse gas emissions. However, in the next few years, the focus could shift to other disclosures, such as water-related metrics or other topics that are not currently contemplated. This ever-changing focus of ESG, when combined with a lack of consensus on what constitutes ESG, could make it difficult for companies to decrease compliance costs over time. Unlike costs, which can be measured and quantified to some degree, the benefits of ESG investing can be more difficult to quantify. Even when quantifiable, the results are mixed. A study by two Vanguard investment strategists concluded that ESG funds have neither systematically higher nor systematically lower raw returns or risk than the broader markets. In contrast, a study by a sustainability data firm found that funds weighted towards companies with positive ESG scores outperformed the unweighted benchmark. However, focusing on, on the portfolio consisting of North American companies, the excess returns were only 17 basis points. Further, when broken down by the E, S, and G categories, portfolios with strong governance met metrics outperformed the benchmark by the most at 0.70%, followed by portfolios with strong environmental metrics at 0.28%. In contrast, portfolios with strong social metrics underperformed the benchmark by 1.29%. The uncertainty of benefits associated with ESG investing, combined with the certainty of costs for companies undertaking ESG activities, should motivate all market participants, whether public companies, investors, or asset managers to question whether the ESG trend itself is sustainable over the long term. Mark Uyeda is a commissioner at the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Free trade is far from a universal value, but its benefits are impossible to deny. At a Cato event in November, British Trade Secretary MP Kemi Badenoch discussed the benefits of trade and the very high costs to countries unable to engage in it. When I talk about a belief in free trade, it's not empty rhetoric. I'm speaking from personal experience about what happens when you don't have it. I've seen what happens when a nation can't trade or worse, embraces protectionism. The result isn't growth and the nurturing of local industries, which is always the excuse that people give. The result is poverty and the very best of a country's talent leaving to find opportunities elsewhere. And people worry about the free market and they talk about it as if it's an uncontrolled experiment. But the market is people having the freedom to make choices to improve their lives. 
It does need good regulation so that people don't cheat the system. Uh, it needs good regulation to, prefer, uh, to prevent unfair trading practices, monopolies, and exploitation of consumers. So it's not an untrammeled free market, but we do need, uh, we do need to have free trade and free markets because when you don't, weird things happen. So I talk about things that I saw growing up. For example, when the government wanted to improve the tomato industry in Nigeria, and so it banned tomato imports. And what didn't happen was loads of farmers deciding to grow tomatoes. What instead happened was tomatoes becoming like diamonds in terms of how hard it was to get them. The supply dried up completely. The prices went up. Uh, big companies that used tomatoes as an ingredient uh, cornered the market, and people who needed to use them to just make food, caterers, restaurants, people who, for whom that was almost the only vegetable they had, couldn't access, couldn't access it, because that's not how you grow a local industry. And I saw it happen over and over again with finance, capital controls, uh, turning the currency into waste paper effectively, or a story I love to tell about when the government banned rice imports and uh, rice became a black market product. And when my mother came to visit me in London, her suitcase uh, when she came to London was not full of things from Harrods and Hamleys. It was full of Tesco Value Rice, which she packed right up to fill her entire suitcase. For those of you who know what I mean by Tesco Value Rice, it became a very, very precious commodity. That's what a lack of free trade and free markets creates. And there are dozens and dozens of examples that I could give. But like I said, at Cato, I shouldn't have to explain why, um, why that is. But the reason why um, I talk about it is because I'm fighting for something that I really believe in. Free markets and free trade make the world a better place. And that is the only purpose to becoming a politician. Nothing else matters. So why has the world become more protectionist? I think that's a more interesting question rather than telling, uh, preaching to the choir about um, the benefits of free trade and free markets. Why has the world become more protectionist? Everyone here knows that protectionism is not the answer. And uh, the U.S. and the U.K. have done a lot to expand the concept of free trade, especially in the last 75 years. We founded the multilateral trading system with our allies, and our transatlantic partnership embodies why free trade works and why it matters so much. But one of the many reasons why I'm so frustrated by the trope that Brexit was the U.K. retreating from the world is because it is completely untrue. I voted to leave the European Union, and I saw Brexit as a once-in-a-generation opportunity for the UK to embrace the world. And trade was, and still is, at the heart of that. So why does it feel like everyone is becoming more protectionist? And the answer is uncertainty. We live in uncertain times. A global pandemic that changed our understanding of the world, Russia's war in Ukraine, and a more assertive China are just three of the things that are making people more fearful about the future. Relatively low economic growth in the West over recent decades compared to what people are used to has also caused part of this problem. So what can we do? What do we need to provide more security for the people of the world? That relative low economic growth uh, is, is absolutely terrifying. And uh, for those people who saw the post-war uh, post 20th century, it makes a lot of our contemporaries feel poorer than they actually are. And you compound that with the belief that jobs are being taken away either by technology or by offshoring. And it's no surprise that the instinct is to protect what we have. So if we are going to make people feel less protectionist, we're going to have to make them feel more secure first. And we need to show how free trade and free markets, when done properly, do provide security. So trade as a tool of security is at the very heart of the trade policy that I'm going to be pushing as uh, the UK's Trade Secretary. So the US and the UK can provide security and indeed certainty by doing three things. One, investing in the future, not just the present. Two, securing and diversifying supply chains, which means more trade, not less. And three, deepening international partnerships, which is one of the reasons why I am here. So here are some examples of how we're doing this in the UK in just one area. So let's talk about climate change uh, as an example. Two weeks ago, I launched the UK's Green Trade and Investment Expo, securing millions of pounds that will grow the UK economy and create jobs across the industries of the future. We all know that climate change is a challenge for us all, wherever we live in the world, but we know 
that we can and should solve it by using free trade and investment to accelerate the technological progress that will protect the planet. And something that's, that not enough politicians say, we must do this, we must protect the planet in a way that does not impoverish the UK, the US, or let's be honest, any other country. I talked then about securing and diversifying supply chains. We will need this to improve energy security globally. So back home in Europe, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has made it clear that relying on authoritarian regimes for energy is not sustainable. Doing so has made it harder and more expensive to heat our homes, and the ensuing energy crisis has increased inflation to levels not seen in recent memory. So our trade relationships will help secure our energy supply, but it's long-term investment in nuclear, in renewables, in democratic countries that will reduce our dependence on fossil fuels and keep down consumer costs. And trade is more than selling each other goods and services. It is also about foreign direct investment. Technological investment creates the jobs of tomorrow. And as I said to all those investors who came to the expo from around the world, including the US, uh, Investments can future-proof the economy if we get it right. More importantly, as we're seeing in the UK, it drives economic growth and keeps communities alive. Communities such as Blythe in the northeast of England, which was a coal mining town once in decline, but it is now thriving as it becomes one of the UK's most important bases for offshore wind and is driving the clean energy revolution funded by investors from across the world, including here. And that's just on climate change. And now that we've left the European Union we have an, and have an independent trade policy, what does this look like in practice? Well, we're using our new freedoms to negotiate new trade deals and upgrade existing ones, deepening our ties with our allies while creating new economic partnerships. We're joining the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, or CPTPP, as um, we call it. It's a network of 11 countries spanning from Asia to the Americas. It's got Canada and Mexico in it, uh, maybe the US someday. But it covers, at the moment, half a billion people. And we're strengthening our relationships with our partners and allies in the Indo-Pacific, a region that will be responsible for half of global growth in the coming decades. We're thinking about the future. We're in talks on a free trade deal with India. India is a country that's going to be the world's third largest economy by 2050. We're acting to protect global supply chains after COVID-19 and of course after the invasion of Ukraine revealed so many vulnerabilities. And what do we want from the US? Well, we've made no secret that we want to deepen trade, uh, trade ties through a comprehensive free trade agreement. So those of you who want more free trade with the UK, please write to your congressman. Um, and I heard that there's some new ones this week. Uh, but the lack of a free trade agreement is no barrier to boosting trade. Our trading relationship with the US was worth over $250 billion over the past 12 months. So we are each other's number one source of foreign direct investment. More than 1.2 million Americans work for UK companies in the United States. And every day, just under one and a half million Brits go to work for an American firm. So the UK has been nimble and innovative in finding other ways of working with you beyond free trade agreements. For instance, we're signing a memoranda of understanding on a statewide level. In May, we signed uh, one on trade and economic cooperation with Indiana. That's a state that already buys $1.4 billion worth of UK goods every year. North Carolina followed in July. And my team is securing others and looking to sign even more. Kemi Badenoch is the British Trade Secretary. She spoke at the Cato Institute November 14th. Government transparency is clearly in the public interest, and protecting people who tell us about waste, fraud, abuse, and other mischief in government deserve protection rather than condemnation or worse, jail. The Cato Institute's Patrick Eddington is something of a whistleblower himself. We discussed his chapter on government transparency in the newly revised Cato Handbook for Policymakers. We have been witness over the last decade or so to massive uh, huge secret government programs, uh, lies perpetrated by massive federal agencies. And uh, 
a lot of these came out because some, some might say heroes, decided to tell us about these uh, either violations of rights or maybe that war isn't going as well as we thought it was. Um, so when it comes to basic government transparency, and we'll start with the feds, what are the what's the low hanging fruit and what are the biggest problems? When we think about government transparency or lack thereof um, and the cost of that lack of transparency, uh, I think a lot of folks you know, would immediately think of Edward Snowden and what he did in 2013 to expose this massive uh, vacuum clean, digital vacuum cleaner style surveillance that the federal government uh, was engaged in. And, you know, that's a prime example of, of one of the mechanisms that you talked about in your opening, which is, you know, the, the, the lone individual or occasionally maybe a few people uh, inside a particular agency or department, seeing something that they know is just fundamentally not right, maybe even just outright illegal or unconstitutional, uh, and taking you know very public action to do it. And in Snowden's case, and I, I think it's useful to to use his case here, he had seen what had happened to whistleblowers before him uh, in the federal government. Um, he had seen what had been done to uh, Chelsea Manning. Uh, Manning, of course, the uh, army private who exposed um, war crimes committed by U.S. forces in Iraq during the Bush 43 administration. Uh, he had seen what happened to some other whistleblowers at the National Security Agency um, who had tried to expose how the 9-11 attacks could have been stopped, uh, but were not because of internal agency bureaucratic nonsense. So, you know, Snowden made the decision, you know, to go public. And in doing so, of course, he put himself at direct legal risk because right now, uh, as federal statutes stand, there is no so-called public interest defense for doing this kind of thing. Now, there are a number of organizations uh, in D.C., the Project on Government Oversight, Government Accountability Project, others you know, who have been basically uh, agitating, if you will, for uh, a modification of federal law to allow for a public interest defense. I I have a simpler solution, uh, one that I think would probably stand up better in the courts, and that is to basically make it a felony uh, for any federal official to uh, conceal information that would dis that would otherwise expose waste, fraud, abuse, mismanagement, or even criminal conduct. And it may surprise our listeners to learn that, that is not currently a federal felony. <laughs> um, it it's against a particular executive order, Executive Order One Three Five Two Six, which deals with the the classification system, but it's not a federal felony. And therefore there is no, you know, meaningful deterrent in that respect. Uh, and that of course is one of the major recommendations that we, and frankly others have made. Uh, but I think Cato has probably been more vocal about this on that point than almost any other organization. What are some other recommendations that you make? We're, we're discussing uh, sort of obliquely your uh, chapter on government transparency in the new Cato uh, handbook for policymakers. What are some of the other recommendations you make? You know, we there is another mechanism that the average citizen can use to try to extract information from our government to find out what it's up to. And that's called the Freedom of Information Act. That's been around since 1966. It's been updated more than half a dozen times, and every update has been in response to federal agencies and departments trying to find ways to not comply with the Freedom of Information Act. So it's this ongoing game, and you know, in in that respect, you know, one of the recommendations uh, that we have here is to go further uh, than the 2016 updates to the FOIA did uh, in terms of the so-called foreseeable harm standard. And what we mean by foreseeable harm is that the, the 2016 update to FOIA required agencies to conduct a foreseeable harm test, meaning that they had to be able to provide a specific articulable reason tied to an actual tangible harm that would result if a particular piece of information was made public. Now, let me give you a very easy one. Um, they, would, they would always win uh, if someone was basically trying to expose a current cryptologic system or technique. Right. And that's fair. Uh, you know, we want NSA to be able to break codes uh, and, and to protect our codes. You know, that's great. Um, there's no way, in my judgment, that they could ever credibly argue 
that it would create a foreseeable harm to law enforcement uh, to basically, let's say, uh, have to report the number of state uh, officers, state uh, law enforcement officers who have been deputized to act as federal agents. Um, that's not something that they would be able to credibly hide, essentially, under a foreseeable harm test. So that's that's one of the things that we want to see. Um, there are also a whole slew of what are known as B3 statutes. And what we're talking about there are specific, what I like to call carve-out statutes. I'll use another very straightforward example. Our friends at the National Security Agency, through their own legislation in 1959, the National Security Agency Act of 1959, they have a very broad carve-out that allows them to withhold basically anything about NSA if they so choose, uh, including whether they have a cafeteria, whether they have a parking lot for their employees. So this is the kind of insanity, essentially, that needs to be revisited. These these broad statutes, these broad carve-outs uh, that make it that much more difficult um, for the average citizen or the average organization like Cato to find out what the government is actually up to. What about at the state level? Uh, there are, you know, p- open records, open meetings laws that vary widely. These are often interpreted by attorneys general at the state level for uh, and and generally, I at least in my experience as a as a reporter years ago, uh, they seem pretty amenable to requests for information from government agencies. That is to say, they're generous with their interpretations in on behalf of the public interest. But that's not always the case. No, it, it really does vary quite widely uh, from state to state. I've I've been involved with some of this stuff with respect to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts because of its role. Uh, in partnering with the Federal Bureau of Investigation and other agencies uh, in essentially conducting de facto surveillance operations against Arab and Muslim American groups, ostensibly under the cover of, quote, community outreach, end quote. Um, And I have, uh, you know, appealed uh, multiple redactions and documents that Cato received from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Uh, That's on appeal. It's been on appeal, it feels like, for ages at this particular point in time. Um, so they, it really does vary. Uh, you know, some other states are much better. I'm pretty sure California is probably pretty decent. Uh, Texas, from what I understand, is kind of a mixed bag. Uh, and so, you know, that that's obviously a hindrance, especially for, um, you know, criminal justice advocates, uh, criminal justice reform advocates in states across the country who want to try to basically get a sense of just exactly what their own police departments uh, or state level law enforcement uh, organizations are up to. So uh, for the average person who maybe is not uh, super interested uh, in some specific uh, knowledge about federal police agencies or something, what would what advice would you give them about just learning a piece of information about their government and and how challenging it might be to actually get something pretty basic? Yeah, there's a wonderful resource uh, that the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press uh, and a number of other really great nonprofits have created. It's called the FOIA Wiki. Uh, you can literally just type in FOIA.wiki. Uh, it'll take you straight to it. It is a fantastic tutorial, not just on the history of the Freedom of Information Act, but it gives you an awful lot uh, about the legislative history, what the agents, different agency or department FOIA le- uh, regulations can look like. It also will give you uh, access to a number of the most significant court decisions involving each of the nine different exemptions uh, under the Freedom of Information Act. So I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a massive go-to resource for me uh, and just about everybody else out there in the community who's concerned about trying to keep track of what the feds are up to. Patrick Eddington is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The latest edition of the Cato Handbook for Policymakers is available now. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a question that demands an answer for this exclusive segment, by all means, send it to us, catoaudio at cato.org. A sad programming note, a sign of the times, perhaps. Starting in April 2023, Cato Audio will no longer be available in physical form. That means no more CDs. 
the March 2023 edition will be the final CD distribution. You can continue to enjoy the program online via streaming services, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Audible, or on the Cato Institute website at cato.org slash Cato Audio. We are grateful for your continued support of Cato Audio, and we're committed to providing you with a program every month that enlightens your views and merits your confidence. For subscription questions or any other matters regarding Cato Audio, feel free to contact us at catoaudio at cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.